0: This is a recording from the More Than the Score lecture series at the University of Virginia, made possible by the Office of Engagement's Alumni Education Program. On September sixth, two 2008, the Director of Athletics discussed trends in intercollegiate sports and talked about how UVA is being affected by increasing financial pressures. Craig Littlepage is introduced by Tom Folders, the president of the UVA Alumni Association.
1: With Craig Littlepage, you can pull down pages and pages and pages of bio-information. And I did that. Um, but I thought I'd spare you uh, all that. I think uh, it's well-known. Craig has been the athletic director uh, here at the University of Virginia since 2001. Before that, he was working also with uh, the Virginia Athletic Department. It's one of those where a person who was working in an organization got promoted, and it was well-deserved. Uh, Craig... You may know, uh, or you probably figured out, played basketball in his uh, early youth. He played for uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he also then entered the coaching ranks where he coached at University of Pennsylvania, Rutgers, and then also at the University of Virginia. Under Craig's uh, leadership, the alumni, or excuse me, the Athletic Department has, uh, has made huge strides in, in moving all of our NCAA and other programs ahead. Uh, You may not know, but the University of Virginia last year uh, had more ACC championships, more scholar athletes than any other school in the ACC. Um, And Craig's uh, Craig's operation has not been without a bit of controversy, uh, receding policies and so on, um, and I think they've handled that extraordinarily well. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Craig Littlepage.
2: Good morning. It is good to be here. And I'll echo uh, the sentiments of uh, Althea and Tom as well to thank you for uh, spending some time with us this morning and going through whatever hardships you might have gone through uh, to uh, arrive at Alumni uh, Hall this morning. Uh, My topic is uh, emerging trends in intercollegiate athletics. I plan to speak for maybe 15 or 20 minutes and then allow time for uh, observations, questions and answers. And um, uh, I can say that uh, I have been in the seven years uh, serving as the university 's athletics director, uh, overwhelmed with the level of interest and support uh, that we have had uh, with our program uh, and we we can 't do it alone; uh, we rely on uh, a lot of dedicated people behind the scenes. Um, the people that you see frequently are the coaches and Student athletes and, and others, but it 's um, you know the rank and file folks that uh, purchase tickets, uh, purchase t shirts and hats, and come to games, uh, uh, folks that donate uh, significantly uh, for the support of our student athletes and uh, to, to help build facilities facilities I might add that are intended to be of use not only to the intercollegiate athletics programs but to be of use to a broader uh, university community uh, uh use and purposes. So uh with that I will begin uh, uh my remarks this morning by uh talking about uh first of all a a frame up frame up of uh NCAA sports. Uh, NCAA sports are divided into uh these categories right here. Uh you have Division one uh sports uh, division two and division three division one is subdivided into uh... three uh... subcategories what used to be called division a, the, the top of the uh... food chain in terms of intercollegiate sports programs is now called the football bowl champion uh... subdivision okay? so when you hear of uh... the acronym fbs or you hear of uh... uh championship or or bowl subdivision uh, that is what used to be referred to as Division 1A. The football championship subdivision is uh, in broad terms what used to be 1AA. Uh, these are uh, programs that sponsor uh, football but not at the level where they provide the full uh, financial support, grant and aids, scholarship support to student athletes. And then those Division 1 sports that don't uh, field uh, football programs that don't sponsor football programs are now uh, in a category that's uh, merely called uh, Division One sports. In this top of the uh, uh, food chain of Division I sports, there are requirements in terms of what it is that is needed to qualify uh, as sponsoring a division, uh, a, a bowl championship uh, division, subdivision, Uh, sports program. Uh, There are scheduling requirements as we see here, attendance requirements, sports sponsorship requirements and also financial aid requirements. And broadly speaking, uh, a a program would need to have 16 intercollegiate sports and a minimum of eight sports for women's programs, uh, six sports for men's programs. One of those men's programs has to be football. And it would have to be football with the following specs as I'll mention in just a little bit. Your football program has to, over a certain period of time, average 15,000 fans uh, in order to qualify as an FBS uh, playing member. Uh, Sixty percent of the football schedule has to be scheduled against similarly situated FBS uh, programs. In basketball, scheduling requirements are also uh, in place. And you can play in basketball. No more than four uh, schools, no more than four opponents that are not at a Division I status. That would be all three categories of Division I status. In uh, in addition, on the men's side, at least one-third of your competitive schedule has to be played at home. Uh, On the women's side, you just have to play all but four of your games against Division I opponents. The... um, other requirements relate to the financial aid requirements uh... in in football uh... you have to have uh... at least ninety percent of the uh, full allotment of eighty five uh, scholarships that are offered um, and as well uh... in uh... overall there have to be two hundred equivalencies uh... two hundred fte's uh... in your sports programs or the equivalent of uh, four million dollars that's allocated uh, toward uh, financial aid to your student athletes, so those are the basic components of a football bowl subdivision athletics program, and what 's required of it. The types of things that keep me and keep uh, my my colleagues up at night I have uh, put in the category of major issues, okay and I think that the uh, three categories I put up here uh, would be seen as universal concerns, things that truly keep uh, athletic administrators up at night. Number one, anything that relates to the integrity of one's program, whether that is integrity, conduct, uh, in the uh, the conduct of the program, NCAA-related matters, conduct as it relates to academics and other uh, interactions around the university community, conduct, uh, et cetera, in terms of uh, the the other people in the program, your coaches and your other uh, staff members second big concern that we're all grappling with is the the need to be able to continue to generate sufficient revenues. This is particularly important because we are uh, in an endeavor where a lot of what we do in terms of uh, uh, expenses, expenditures, is beyond our control. Uh, When the cost of scholarships go up at the university, uh, our scholarship bill goes up we right now for example uh, invest about eleven million dollars in scholarship support another million point two in terms of uh... summer school uh... aid support to student athletes so when the university has a seven percent increase in tuition and other costs uh... that hits our bottom line as well uh... when there are fuel surcharges on uh... plane uh, travel and other travel-related expenses that go up. uh, That hits us uh, in terms of our bottom line. So the ability to continue to generate revenue is something that is a particularly uh, difficult thing and is uh, again on the minds of uh, uh, this athletic director as well as my colleagues around the country. Finally, the ability to be able to link uh, this uh, athletics enterprise uh... and our mission with the mission of the university and the academic mission uh, of the university to be uh... specific this is particularly important at a place like the university of virginia making sure that we do all the things that we can do to ensure that our student athletes are indeed students that uh... they are moving toward uh... progress towards a degree that they're graduating and that at the end of their experience that they are indeed productive members of whatever community uh, they might be. The kinds of trends that I would identify that we're seeing in terms of uh, Division I or football bowl uh, subdivision uh, uh, sports programs are the uh, following. Hiring practices, uh, how we put staffs together, how we uh, uh, compose a a student-athlete cohort student-athlete welfare, uh, academic reform, and then, again, the financial pressures that I alluded to before. And I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about each of these. In terms of the uh, hiring practices, there is a tremendous amount of attention that's being given to uh, how schools are diversifying uh, their coaching staffs, their senior administrative staff, and all other lines of the organization. Uh, You hear a lot about Uh, particularly this time of year, uh, football hiring and the uh, lack of minority representation in terms of uh, Division I head coaches. But uh, I will share with you that even beyond that particular sport and the attention that's paid there, we're also struggling with this in terms of our Olympic sport programs, uh, you know, the soccer, lacrosse, tennis, swimming, uh, rowing, et et cetera and at many different levels of our administrative staff. So there is a very, very strong uh, effort uh, nationally from the NCAA and then as well institutionally to uh, come up with strategies whereby we can more successfully diversify uh, our coaching staffs and uh, uh, department staffs, if you will. Uh, As we look at institutional initiatives to diversify staffs, schools are now Uh, having their feet held to the fire in terms of linking their search processes with the search processes, the the athletics department uh, searches, with the uh, search processes of the university. This is something that we have done over a long period of time, so it's a very natural sort of uh, uh, process for us. But uh, there are many schools, even to this day throughout the country, where (coughs) the way in which they hire uh, coaches, in, in the major sports in particular, is much, much different than uh, how you would see a search done for a a senior position, whether it's a dean or a uh, department head uh, within the institution. So there are more efforts to uh, link the uh, initiatives of the athletics department in hiring and the uh, uh, hiring practices of the institution. That's very important. There are conference initiatives at hand whereby Uh, There are a lot of different uh, entry-level sorts of opportunities, internships, to give uh, underrepresented individuals, whether they are females or whether they are ethnic minorities, the opportunity to get uh, ground-level experience, uh, internships with uh, the TV partners, with the corporate sponsors, and with any other sort of entity that might be involved in, in our case, Atlantic Coast Conference, Uh, business over the course of a given year. The different sport associations and sport committees uh, have a lot of different initiatives as well in terms of diversifying staffs. The American Football Coaches Association does uh, a lot of programming to identify uh, ethnic minority uh, candidates. These are coordinators, football coordinators, that are one step away from making the move to a head coaching position. Uh, There's the Fiesta Bowl out in uh, uh, Phoenix uh, that hosts in conjunction with the major conferences um, and sport associations a a, a, a minority, uh, an ethnic minority uh, workshop every year in May. And this is an opportunity for uh, several dozen of the top coordinators uh, throughout the country to come and meet conference commissioners, meet athletics directors, et cetera. Uh, And then there are uh, NCAA initiatives, where they have had a number of different uh, organizations, the Ethnic Minority Male Institute, the Minority uh, Institute, uh, and several other initiatives that the NCAA has uh, put this on their radar screen as a very important focus and trying to identify and get into the process, uh, ethnic minorities and women, as far as uh, uh, leadership positions in intercollegiate athletics. Related back to the issues, student athlete welfare, this has been another significant trend that we see having emerged, particularly over the last uh, about 18 years or so. Um, In that time, in those 18 years since 1990, we've seen a uh, proliferation of legislative uh, items that have given uh, uh, student athletes a a lot more in terms of their experiences uh, on campus and when I say a lot more, everything from uh, giving student athletes a seat at the table at the NCAA convention and allowing them to have a voice in terms of those major discussions on topics and legislation that impact them directly uh, and permissive legislation in terms of a number of other things that directly uh, benefit their experience on the, on the respective campuses. As an example, uh, years ago uh, a student athlete that was on a grant and aid from the institution could not work during his or her uh, academic year. They could work in the summer, they could work between terms, but they could not work during the academic year. One of the things that has, is now permissible is the opportunity to work during the academic year. A second thing that has uh, been uh, permissive legislation is opening up of additional summer school opportunities. Historically, and again, we would go back maybe 10 years or so, you saw in summer school basically your football team and your two basketball teams that were on their campuses attending summer school as part of the grant aid program. That is, that the, the summer school was funded. You had students from other sports, but uh, by and large, they were funding their own summer school. The NCAA a number of years ago opened up uh, the legislation to permit uh, any student athlete, prior to initial enrollment first of all I should say uh, uh, opened up uh, grant aid opportunity in the summer for all student-athletes but then for the incoming student-athletes who previously were not given the opportunity to come in on grant aid uh, these uh, high school kids that just graduated from high school are now permitted prior to their initial full-time enrollment to come to their campus uh, come to summer school on, on scholarship now these Uh, regulations, these legislative uh, regulations uh, related to summer school are basically in response to the other topic that I mentioned earlier, uh, the academic reform and beefing up and enhancing the academic performance of of student-athletes overall. So the idea that a student-athlete can come into the summer, get six credits, nine credits under his or her belt, and then as they start classes at the beginning of September, have a head start, not only in terms of what they have uh, put on their academic uh, profile, but also in terms of gaining a familiarity with the institution, getting to know the, the different uh, deans and faculty, uh, getting to know where different buildings are, et cetera. It's a huge advantage, and we've seen some uh, a, a significant improvement in terms of how that has played out. The NCAA, uh, following uh, the CBS contract for the NCAA tournament, uh did a number of things to provide uh seed money for student athletes that had uh financial need. Previously when this was uh, started it was called the Needy Student Athlete Fund, N-E-E-D-Y, Needy Student Athlete Fund. And this was money directed to the institutions from the NCAA that would provide for the student to have the ability to buy a winter coat, uh to buy uh A shirt and tie or a a nice dress and a blazer uh, or to a number of different categories for which a student could apply for these funds uh, in order to enhance their experience at at the school. Again, the terminology needy student athlete fund was uh, first uh, used. Because of the perception of what the needy student athlete fund uh, implied, that was uh, shortly changed to the opportunity fund. And also they opened this up to uh, even more uh, student athletes on on campus. So every school in the country has money set aside on an annual basis provided by the NCAA uh, that is intended to uh, fill in those areas where a student athlete might have need. If they need to uh, make an emergency trip home and they don't have the money to do that, they can tap into the Opportunity Fund. Uh, If they have uh, some uh, course, uh, materials that aren't provided by the scholarship, they can tap into the Opportunity Fund to do that. So a lot of times when you hear about uh, student athletes should be paid and this and that and the other, please understand that student athletes do have at their access a number of different things beyond just a scholarship. They have things like the Opportunity Fund, uh, those that have full uh, need, full financial need have access to Pell Grants. Uh, so. Just to kind of give a frame of reference for what has happened over time, the NCAA has uh, tried to find ways uh, to direct more in terms of financial support to student athletes through, uh, in this case, the Opportunity Fund. There are any number of expanded student athlete services. We've seen a a tremendous growth in academic support services. Uh, Twenty years ago, we probably had three full-time people and one intern in our academic services area. Right now we employ 13 people that provide academic services that are members of our athletic department team. Okay? And you see the same sort of expansion of these not only staffs but programming uh, that schools are offering around the country because of the topic of academic reform and the emphasis on academic performance. Again, I will talk about that in just a second. But even beyond academic services uh, where you see life skills, uh, programming, you see uh, sports nutritionists, uh, sports psychologists. There is a, a, a trend toward providing more of the services that will uh, allow for a much more successful experience as is, as a student-athlete navigates his or her way uh, throughout the college experience. And then finally, uh, I, I put down here the cost of attendance. A, a full scholarship is room, books, board, and tuition. Okay. An institution has beyond the... Uh, the cost of a scholarship, what is uh, called the cost of attendance. And the cost of attendance is that amount of money over and above what the cost uh, is in terms of room, books, board, you know, tuition fees, et cetera, um, that allows for travel home, that allows for other incidental expenses. Okay? So the NCAA legislatively had a scholarship capped at room, books, board, and tuition but students at at an institution have this uh, incremental uh, amount of maybe two thousand dollars or more uh, that would be tacked onto that which would be quote the cost of attendance. Uh, Several years ago a number of student athletes filed a class action suit against the NCAA the case is called White versus uh, the NCAA and they filed suit against the NCAA for restricting the uh, amount that a school was able to provide for a student athlete that was on full scholarship. So just recently, back in August, to be specific, the NCAA uh, uh, had a settlement with uh, uh, the class action plaintiffs, uh, and now there is a $10 million uh, fund set aside for student athletes, roughly, that were attending football bowl subdivision schools between 2002 and 2005. Uh, these student-athletes have the opportunity to file for additional uh, resources uh, that they would have gotten in terms of these things that I mentioned before, travel, other course uh, uh, materials, etc. So again, the NCAA is moving toward finding ways of providing more in terms of the uh, experience uh, in uh, the student-athletes' lives. In terms of academic reform, back uh, years ago uh, in the early 1980s, we came up with this uh, thing that was called Proposition 48. Proposition 48, what was it? It basically put, in terms of initial eligibility requirements, um, these uh, stipulations on entering student-athletes, okay? Every entering student-athlete to be eligible uh, for participation in his or her first year had to have 11 core courses, they had to have a minimum of a 2.0 grade point average, and they had to have a 700 SAT score. When this first came out, there were any number of different uh, studies that were done to figure out if this was a a legitimate way to measure or project future success, future academic success of uh, uh, student-athletes. There were any number of uh, studies, uh, very, very controversial in terms of uh, uh, a number of high-profile coaches who felt as though uh, these requirements were uh, 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 created a very unfair situation for uh, African American student athletes in particular. Um, so, shortly thereafter, uh, there were additional proposals that were put on the board: Proposal 16 and proposals 35. What they did was, and the, the key objection to proposition or proposal 48 was the what was said to be an arbitrary 700 requirement on the SAT scores. Um, so the proposals 16 and 35, the uh, successors to uh, pr- uh, Proposition 48, uh, increased the number of core courses up to 13, but it took away that uh, uh, mandatory 700 score and the, car- and the corresponding 2.0. And what it then created was what we refer to as a sliding scale. So The higher the grade point average is, the lower that the uh, SAT score could be. Conversely, the higher the SAT score, the lower that the grade point average could be. Then we had in the early, well, in 2002 in particular, uh, Proposal 2002-22B. This increased, again, the uh, core course requirements, added another core course. And then what we have right now is Proposal 2003-26 which has a number of different pieces to it. But the significant piece is that it has increased the number of core courses. So we go from uh, 20 some odd years ago where 11 core courses were required to now uh, where 16 core courses are required, core courses being academically uh, oriented courses. And for each of these academic areas, there are certain units that are required in math and certain other units that are required in the other uh, subject areas. So you have 16 core courses, and you still have this uh, sliding scale, corresponding GPA and uh, standardized test score, either SAT or uh, ACT. Okay, as we continue uh, with the discussion of academic reform, what we're seeing uh, in addition to this, in this uh, APR, academic progress rate, uh, we're seeing a number of different things that uh, are intended to ensure the academic success of student-athletes. There are tougher continuing eligibility requirements, and by that I mean that whereas years ago a student athlete had to be eligible for competition on the first day of class, if they were eligible for, on the first day of class, by NCAA standards, they were going to be eligible on the last day of class. So you're uh, certified for eligibility once during the uh, academic year. Schools have the opportunity or had the opportunity to have different requirements but the NCAA standard was one certification once a year, once you're certified, generally you're going to be good until the end of the year. Now students are certified semester by semester so you can't enroll and get certified as eligible in the fall, goof around and not be eligible in the spring semester, okay? So that's a huge change and a a significant and important change. There's more monitoring, in other words, semester by semester. There are also percentage requirements in terms of what a student athlete needs at the end of the first year, the second year, the third year for continuing eligibility. Finally, again, years ago, student athletes uh, that weren't serious about their uh, academic pursuits would goof around during the academic year, uh, lose their eligibility, go on warning or whatever the different terminologies were, And then they would come to summer school, load up on their summer school, regain their eligibility. And what that was was a tremendous waste of resources, a tremendous waste of resources. Uh, And now schools are holding student-athletes' feet to the fire so that they don't rely on trying to become eligible in the summer. But the NCAA has responded by limiting how many courses you can take to regain your eligibility in the summer. So, again, it puts constant pressure on the student-athlete semester by semester to uh, keep their grades up, to keep themselves in good academic standing. We're going through a number of different uh, questions that we ask ourselves uh, in, in, in the business about whether this is the best use of our resources, what we're doing to you know, fund these scholarships, to fund these big facilities, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And there's always this kind of push and pull between the priorities of the university and resources that are j- uh, directed to university services uh, versus what it is that we do in athletics. And it's a, it's a discussion and a debate that is worthy to continue to have over time. And we ask ourselves the question, uh, are there ways that we can blend and coordinate our services with university services so that we don't have to expend resources of our own whereby any student might be able to get uh, different types of academic uh, support and academic advising or life skills or uh, different things in terms of career services, et cetera. How has this impacted academic integrity? Very quickly, I think that we continue to look at whether the new rules do in any way uh, create any sort of compromises as it relates to uh, admissions of of student athletes uh, and in terms of uh, whether there is a watering down of an academic program, the curriculum that is, whether it is a compromise of the uh, uh, the, uh, advising system and how we're uh, helping students uh, select courses and providing of tutorials and different types of things in terms of academic support. This is a, a, a discussion that we have and it's a worthy uh, discussion. And are all these things adversely impacting any different segment of, of, of our uh, cohort group? Okay, in terms of the financial impact, financial pressures, you hear the terminology all the time, arms race. We're in an arms race. Everybody's keeping up with the Joneses, et cetera. And I can share with you that there is a tremendous amount of pressure that we face trying to keep up with the competition or trying to stay ahead of the competition. There are different things that we look at in terms of the Director's Cup and how we measure our program and so forth. And everybody is in this uh, 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 athletic enterprise at the football bowl subdivision level of trying to provide as much as we possibly can in terms of scholarships and student services, in terms of great facilities to attract prospective students, et cetera. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the arms race. There's increased competition. Everybody wants to be at the top of the line in terms of their uh, respective conferences or they want to be at the top of the line in terms of the uh, national scene. You're seeing uh, more schools that are applying for Division I uh, status, schools that are going from Division Two, hopefully making a jump to Division One. There's now discussion about Canadian institutions that want to get into NCAA sports. So the uh, competition is increasing over time commercialization uh in order to run a program as i said before we have to continue to look at different ways of generating the revenue that it takes to uh fund the program if we do the same thing this year uh that we did last year uh, we have to generate 10% more in our budget to do what we did last year because of these things that i talked about before the costs that in many cases are beyond our control that means that we have to go to and sometimes sponsorships and corporate entities and uh, look at other ways by which we can generate uh, the, the, the necessary funding to run the program. The financial pressure has also been one of the facilitating factors of this camp, uh, this conference expansion that we saw a number of years ago where schools are moving from one place to the other. From an ACC standpoint, the reason to go from nine members uh, in 2004, 2005 to twelve members was because adding three schools meant by NCAA rules that the ACC could sponsor a football championship game, a game that could bring a windfall in terms of the, the revenues projected by ticket sales, TV, corporate sponsorships, et cetera. That's the reason that schools were moving around from one conference to another or from independence into conferences, et cetera. The football playoff that's uh, long been talked about, one of the reasons that that is on the table and people are, are, are urging in terms of the athletics uh, uh, administrators uh, a football championship game in division one or the football bowl subdivision would be a windfall in terms of the generate uh, the revenue that could be generated uh, and that's something that's being looked at very seriously. The NCAA tournament expanding the tournament beyond 65 teams. Okay, The reason that uh, that might be considered is because of incremental revenue that could flow as a result of having a bigger field, having a larger tournament, a longer tournament, et cetera. Okay, and then the final thing, dashboard indicators. This uh, basically relates to a new thing that has just happened in NCAA sports. We know that this model that we have um, is not sustainable in terms of seven to ten percent growth every year in athletics. It far exceeds the growth that we see in uh, expenditures at the university generally. Uh, so we know that it's out of hand and we're trying to find ways of Uh, bringing this sort of thing uh, under control. So the dashboard indicators basically are are similar to what you see at an institution generally. It's benchmarking of the financial data uh, that we uh, compile and work from uh, in an athletics department. And what it does, it allows for apples to apples comparisons in terms of uh, schools of uh, like-minded approaches in uh, Division division I institutions. So, it really does provide a, a, a system of accountability, and uh, it, it also, I think, ultimately, as we go uh, further and further in time, will allow for uh, this information, this comparative information, to influence our decision making and uh, doing things that are uh, much more business minded, uh, much smarter from a uh, uh, financial standpoint. So, the hope is that there will be a higher level of fiscal responsibility uh, and, as well, institutional accountability. That is, that Uh, Senior uh, budget uh, managers at the institution and athletic administrators can trade, uh, can share information, and uh, the athletics uh, officials can use that sort of institutional uh, mindset and those eyeballs to be able to uh, guide uh, different decisions that we might make on an ongoing basis. So that's uh, basically what I wanted to talk about this morning, give you kind of a a frame-up of what we're dealing with, what the emerging trends are, And at this time, I'd be uh, happy to answer questions that you might have. Uh, Greg, Tim Atkin. Yep. Uh, The
3: financial thing, it seems to me, has gotten way out of hand. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the owners of various national football leagues. And they came up with a cap system. And I was wondering if in the NCAA they considered to deal with the cost, put a cap, either by conference or however right. you want to do it, but to take the burden off you because one time I thought it would be nice to take the requirement of funding the athletic program and put it on the university because the biology department doesn't raise its own money, but they sure make the athletic department do
2: it. Right. And I've lost that battle. Okay. But in terms of cap, cabinet, that seems to me it's
3: worth wondering how that's whether that's been
2: thought of. The answer is that that was attempted a number of years ago. And uh, we had in 1990, thereabouts, a trend uh, which was to cut expenses in NCAA sports. So there was a mandatory 10% cut across the board in everything 10% cut in scholarships, 10% cut in schedules. One of the things that was in that uh, 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 era was in uh, men's basketball when they started to cut back on staffs they went from a, a, a full-time assistant coach to what was called a restricted earnings coach and this was a coach that was only going to be able to make a certain amount of money. Okay. Fast forward eight years, the NCAA was taken to court and uh, lost a, a significant uh, uh, settlement uh, as a result of what was called a restraint of trade. So the idea is a great one, but the practical application of it, we'd been down that path once before, and uh, the NCAA had to uh, pay tens of millions of dollars uh, to a class of uh, assistant basketball coaches who over a period of time had their earnings capped at a certain level, so that 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 's part of the answer yeah, It was tried now um, there probably are some things that we could do in terms of some of these other pieces the, the schedules uh, and I have been in uh, many discussions with uh, basketball coaches who think that their schedules are too long basketball a lot of basketball coaches want to play fewer games, but if I decide to, instead of playing 32 games in a season, play 27 games. But uh, North Carolina State says you know, we're going to be at a significant recruiting advantage. You know, What kid wouldn't want to go to a school where they could play more games, et cetera? So I think a lot of this is going to have to come through the coaches to uh, uh, push some level of understanding about the financial realities, uh, particularly as it relates to their sports uh, I think that there's a chance, but um, I don't think it's going to be the NCAA that's going to push it. Let me mention one, one thing, too, because uh, you may be polite this morning. There are a couple things that may be on your mind, and I want to talk about at least one of those. Um, and it relates to the um, academic reform uh, issue, and it as well relates to the uh, the conduct issue. that that I mentioned previously. Uh, We went through a period of about six weeks in the summer where we had some disturbing things take place um, with student athletes in our program. and uh, We were as bothered by it as uh, those that follow our program. I started to put our coaches together sometime late July, early August to talk about these situations. And uh, we came up with what we thought was a good strategy to deal with some of this. Uh, We had, prior to that time, put together what we are now calling an academic accountability program, where student athletes that are having particular academic issues find themselves either on warning or have a suspension in abeyance. They are required to meet with me, their academic coordinator, uh, to put together an accountability Uh, contract which spells out specifically what they have to do A to regain their academic standing and then also to uh, have full participation in the sports program okay so we did that on the academic side we developed this in January implemented it this year the coaches and I agreed that we probably need to do the same sort of thing as it relates to conduct so what we have is a system in place that we're implementing as of the fall semester where a student athlete that finds themselves in one of these highly visible uh, 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 situations uh, that gets into the media or that rises to the level of having a university jurisdictional uh, uh, or a university jurisdictional, jurisdictional implications, that student is also required to meet with me to outline the expectations of what it will take for them to uh, either regain or retain their good standing in the, uh, in, in, uh, in athletics, uh, in the athletics program. So um, we are in the process now, of, as I said, implementing this. We think that it is a step in the right direction, that it uh, sends the message that in addition to whatever team rules that they have, that there is a level of responsibility and a level of oversight, not only in terms of their, their academic welfare, but also in terms of what it is that they're doing uh, as a student athlete in this community. And the, I will meet with every one of our 25 sports teams and deliver the message. And the message is the same to every one of the teams because this is not a, a high visibility major sport versus minor sport. This is not men versus women or certain uh, ethnic groups and different cohorts. This is everybody. We've had kids in all different sports or in many different sports, women and men, Uh, that have gotten into some of these situations and the message is this. The number one priority for the athletic director for this year is conduct and behavior. Uh, You need to understand what it is that will make our jobs difficult to provide the resources and to provide the environment that we can have the kind of sports program that we have. And if we see a continuation of these things, uh, we are in deep trouble. We, we, We can't allow these things to continue. Uh, to to plague them as individuals and to plague our department. So I've asked them generally to understand that uh, everybody got here as a result of somebody else, loving parents, families, high school coaches, teachers, whatever the case may be. Respect these people. Think about these people that you might be letting down. Just just think about them and respect them. Respect your teammates, respect your sport, uh, respect your Um, uh, athletic department and respect the university for crying out loud. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of where we are in terms of trying to raise the bar and set a standard that they know that it's not just now um, what it is that my coach requires of me but it's what's now is required of me in terms of conduct in my entire experience at the university from the uh, Department of Athletics. So, for what that's worth, I thought that I would throw that out there because it does uh, connect with some of the things uh, that you've seen over the last several uh, months and uh, we think that over time this will uh, create a much, much better environment in terms of what our student-athletes are doing. So if you wanted to ask a question about it, hopefully I answered it, but if there's a follow-up. Yes.
0: Could you talk a little bit about the philosophy of scheduling the first or second best team
3: in the country, in Compton, uh, when we lose by 52-7, isn't it tough on the players and humiliating the fans? And is this an overall good thing or is it a
2: money thing? Well, when you schedule a game, A, uh, you certainly don't expect to lose. You don't schedule to lose. Um, secondly, when we scheduled this game, our projected team was much different than the team that we put out there. Again, those are things that we did not anticipate, and certainly we were not going to be in... May of 2008, uh, June, July, able to call Southern Cal Say, oh, we had a number of kids that we were counting on we can't play the game. So we played the game with the anticipation that there would be uh, um, a number of different players out there that weren't out there. That's all part of it. Uh, We scheduled this game because we want to make a statement about our program that uh, we wanted, that's the kind of program uh, that we want to be compared to uh, at some point in time. Um, yes, it was difficult to lose the game. Nobody wanted to lose the game. But we didn't schedule the game to lose it. We scheduled the game to uh, go against one of the best in the country and to see where we stood. Yes?
3: Um, a couple of questions on scholarships. Uh, I think you mentioned there are 85.
2: 85 full scholarships at the top uh, subdivision. Yes. That's in all sports? No. no, no, that's football only. At, uh, at the University of Virginia, we have 300, I want to say 320 FTEs, FTEs, full time equivalencies. So basically, outside of football, men's and women's basketball, the majority of the other sports will give out 50% of a scholarship, 75% of a scholarship, 20, you know, they'll divvy up scholarships among a large number of, uh, of uh, student athletes on their teams. Every team has a specific number that they cannot exceed. So uh, men's soccer, for example, I think it's 9.9 FTEs. They can divide up. There could be 20 kids on the soccer team on scholarship, but it can add up to the FTE of 9.9. So our total FTEs uh, is 320 in our 25 sport program. I think we have about 40. I think it's between 40 and 45 grants that are endowed grants and aids. Our goal is to move that up over time, for sure. Yes.
0: Can uh, you comment on? I often heard that uh, our requirements, academic requirements, are much stronger
3: than ACWA's. Can you comment? That?
2: University of Virginia's requirements? Yes. Um, I I couldn't give you the specifics because uh, each school at the university has different standards, uh, but I can say generally that the NCAA standard is lower than what the UVA standard is. So a student athlete uh, uh, at the University of Virginia could be ineligible by university standards but eligible, eligible by NCAA standards. Um, Again, I I don't know the specifics of each school and, you know, the different requirements. But I will say that the NCAA requirements have been uh, enhanced over time, and they are closer to what the University of Virginia and other competitive institutions' academic standards are. But every school has, uh, not only school at the university, but every institution nationally, has different academic uh, rules and regulations, different standards for good standing, et cetera.
1: Um it seems as though there's an
0: increasing trend that a lot of the, um, the athletic programs around the nation are operating, are operating at a loss. And unless you're in Ohio or
1: Texas or, uh, you know, a football team in the SEC where you're, you know, netting about $5 million where the, the opposite trend for many universities are here where we're losing $5 million a year. What, what type of strategies are universities and conferences
2: doing in order to counteract that uh, a little bit more marketing. Yeah, the, the question for those in the back, if you didn't hear it, uh, what are conferences and schools doing to close the gap uh, so that they are not running deficits and generating sufficient revenues to run the program or controlling costs? Is that a pretty accurate reframing? Um, I, I would say that on the part of the NCAA, uh, first of all, it is involved in Uh, a number of different uh, commercial ventures um, intended to add value to the NCAA brand. So uh, this blockbuster CBS TV deal, $6 billion uh, TV deal for the NCAA tournament that was an 11-year deal, that's an example of that. And then different pieces of the NCAA tournament uh, that uh, market tickets differently, that create different sponsorships at a high level, uh, et et cetera. Uh, similarly, in, uh, conferences are involved in the TV negotiations. They're also involved in the uh, uh, generation of revenue through sponsorships and uh, uh, that sort of thing, corporate, po- uh, corporate partners. And then the schools, I think, in addition to uh, multi uh, media rights, uh, uh, licensing, uh, uh, ticket uh, sales, uh, more and more are. Uh, like the institutions generally involved in philanthropic uh, initiatives so um, everybody now is raising money I don't care if you're uh, at the number one school in the country in terms of your athletics program or the number 340th. everybody's raising money because everybody has the same sort of financial issues some just have more commas and have the uh, decimal at a different uh, point. But we all have the same sorts of problems. And there are probably a dozen schools, Ohio State, Texas, Florida, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're printing money at those schools uh, you know, because of the size of their facilities and TV contracts, et cetera. But the rest of us are really struggling to, to, to put this together. And I think that it has to be a combination of new types of revenue streams, which quite honestly, uh, in an economic downturn, is difficult. And uh, controlling cost, or in some cases, cutting cost, and making some difficult decisions on the expense side. And uh, you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do as well, is to uh, look at different uh, uh, revenue opportunities. And again, companies don't have a lot of discretionary uh, uh, sponsorship sort of money, so this is not an environment that you want to be out there trying to generate uh, a lot of different sponsorships. We're, uh, as many people know, uh, very uh, aggressive in terms of our uh, fundraising uh, appeals. Uh, Those are intended to fund scholarships, to fund summer school, provide academic support, uh, build facilities. And I would say that uh, what we have tried to do, as I mentioned before, to uh, show a level of responsibility, institutional responsibility, when we uh, improved the football stadium, uh, we didn't want to go into an $80 million campaign for a facility that was going to be used six or seven days a week. We had to come up with something that brought added value to that facility on a near everyday basis. So, uh, some of you might not realize, there is a university unit, the uh, University Career Services, that is actually a tenant in the uh, Bryant Hall uh, of the football stadium. And this is where our students go for resume writing, uh, interviews with uh, the corporate uh, recruiters to come in, et cetera. So when corporate recruiters come in, they use the suites. Um, Much better situation than they had previously in Garrett Hall, where they were in the basement of Garrett Hall. Many times corporate recruiters would have to uh, rent uh, meeting space at local hotels to interview students. Now they come to the stadium, they do their interviews, et cetera, in the suites. So we found a way to to make it a usable facility uh, more than just those seven football uh, games that may be in a given year and to make it usable and uh, with added value to the students generally. Similarly, with the John Paul Jones Arena, we didn't want to build a facility that was just going to be benefiting the two basketball programs. So it was built with a multi-use strategy in mind where we could attract uh, shows and concerts and convention sort of business, etc and uh, do things that we were not able to do in uh, University Hall or other university facilities, bringing added value to the university community, the Central Virginia region, et cetera. So when we talk about the aggressive fundraising that we do, obviously it benefits our program in athletics. We're giving scholarships, et cetera. But I think that we're also uh, showing a level of responsibility in terms of bringing value to the community as a whole.
3: Gregory, to use the term revenue and budget and funding and commercialization and so on many, many times. And I believe you alluded to it, not just the word integrity. I appreciate the lecture that you're giving these young people and all the things that they should respect. And I think Virginia stands pretty much apart from all the other schools who have sacrificed a lot of what most of us learned here at the University the sake of um, commercialization and the things that go along with that. Um, I would add to that list of things they should respect is respect yourself because, and certainly the role that they're in is uh, leaders, uh, as role models, as possible mentors. And to advocate that, I think it's not consistent with what we teach and
2: learn in our university. So there's
3: um, just another facet I respect,
2: Can can, can I I just interrupt for a quick second? Part of my discussion with the students is that uh, notion of, of respecting yourself. And what that means is that I, the athletic director, I'm looking for leaders. I'm looking for people that are willing to intervene. I'm looking for people that have that gut instinct that tells them when something bad could happen. And you have got to be willing as a student-athlete, with respect for yourself, respect for the university, et cetera, et cetera, to stop and think and say, I'm not going to do that. You have to be willing to stop your teammate, your roommate, your suite-mate, because we all have the instinct of knowing when something's going to go bad. I need people that are leaders and that can do those things, make those tough decisions. Those decisions don't make you popular in the short term. But in the long term, that's what a teammate and a friend does. Keeps you from stepping in the, the stepping in the crap, if you will. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I thought that. It wasn't the criticism; uh, it was the uh, caveat. Okay.
3: And uh, along those lines, uh, has it been determined who's going to start a quarterback?
2: <laughs> the the quarterback, as I understand it, uh, is is not the quarterback situation is not going to change. All right. What I can say about this situation. Is that there is a lot more to this than what is reported. All right? And in terms of the enforcement of our policies and the objective information that we have, there is no reason to do anything else at this point in time. That's all that I can say. But it's a little bit different situation than what is in the media. And I think that you can understand that I. There are reasons I can't talk about it, but uh, in addition to everything else that's behind the scenes in this regard, there is just the, uh, the uh, aspect of due process, if you will. So as I understand it, there will not be a quarterback change today, um, and we are indeed enforcing our policies and procedures, our regulations. Last one, one more. I'd like to
0: make this an observation I uh, came up here 50 years ago almost to the day. I went for four four years. I think I've been a a loyal alumnus. Uh, I cannot recall anything, any more divisive to the average alumni than what is now made company. The receiving is receded, life goes on. But I would ask you, because I know you're on the VAF board. I know the university has four or five members. Everybody just kind of walks away from this and says, "Don't." Ask me. Ask the VAF guys, and they cover up. I would just urge that someone in a responsible university position write down the lessons learned and come up with a comprehensive analysis of the way this procedure was handled, and try to heal what I perceive among my colleagues as a very serious loss of. The, I guess it's an emotional loss in terms of what we valued. It's got stadiums it's undergraduates, lovely day, there's a piece that's getting hold for 25 years. Someone really thumped the tub on that policy. No one will take responsibility for it. And I just think at the end of the process, it's going to go on being really happy. Someone needs to come out with a white paper that says, this is what you did, this is why you did it. This is the outcomes we expect, and upside down yeah.
2: OK. Um, and I, I, I'm comfortable with either hearing your criticism and reaction or taking responsibility uh, for criticism and reaction. Believe me, I'm not one that will shy away from stepping up and uh, taking on the responsibility. Uh, so I will take on the responsibility of playing a role, as you mentioned. Um, Reseeding is almost inevitable in terms of how athletic programs are run. And when I say almost inevitable, again, when we talk about how our program is run, all right, and how programs are run generally. And we are running out of ways of being able to fund the program. Again, just using one example, to fund scholarships as we're funding them now, fully funding our scholarships, we have to raise $1 million a year just to fund our scholarships not and that's just one part of our budget in a close to 60 million dollar uh, budget a year we don't get money from the state we don't get money from the university we are self sufficient in terms of we have to generate our own funding and there are any there are only a certain number of ways that we can generate the money to fund the program and seats and parking and You know, these are all different things that we have as assets in order to fund the program. And I I understand that it's an emotional thing. And I understand that it's uh, change. And for all of us, change is difficult. But we looked at all kinds of ways in order to uh, create a funding model that would allow us to sustain our program for a certain period of time. And if you look around the country, the experience that we went through in terms of reviewing, putting a policy together, implementing a policy, how that policy was communicated, executing the policy, etc., it is not different by much with what other schools have experienced. Now, again, there are those that'll say, Well, we are the University of Virginia, we're different, etc. I understand that. And I I, I I believe that as well. But at a certain level, There are things that we have to do in order to help run our program. If we didn't do it, quite honestly and candidly, we have a different program in a couple of years. We don't have a 25-sport program that will field competitive teams nationally uh, almost across the board. Uh, We will lose these talented coaches that we brought here. The minute that we have to start saying no to some of these things in terms of Uh, helping to uh, build and maintain good facilities. Some of these talented coaches have come here for the right reason and they have had great opportunities to go other places but they're here because they believe in what it is that we're doing at the University of Virginia. But at the point that we cannot retain their staffs, uh, at the point that we can't continue to improve the program, fully fund scholarships, uh, provide the operational support, they're going to other places, and that, that those are the kinds of things that we have to deal with on a practical, everyday basis. And again, I understand what you're saying, and I get phone calls and emails, and and if there was another way, do you, do you think that that was fun to go through as an athletic director? No athletic director in the country wants to do that, uh, and I can share with you that it wasn't a very pleasant thing, but. As we looked at all the different options, it was either to do that or change our program. Which do you want? That's a rhetorical question. Okay?
0: 52 to 7 loss without making any less change. Oh. But anyway, life goes on. I appreciate your candy. Okay.
2: I can take one more. If there isn't one, okay, right here.
3: I'll get that hard and I'll give you another one. The sign dance. I mean, right. The going up with, um, you know, it's, it's an easy hit to say Mr. Jefferson, the university is now infringing, infringing free speech. What do we know from here with regards to that?
2: Okay, let, let me try to, it was about the ban on signs, and I'll, I'll give you um, a little background on this. Um, it, it was intended to uh, provide what I thought was very fundamentally um, a level of sportsmanship. That's in all of our facilities. Now, this this is the misconception. Uh, Many people saw this as a uh, football or a basketball situation, uh, that we're trying to keep people from uh, saying negative things about uh, either a coach or a, 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 a player. This was about what it is based on the national discussions, based on the conference discussions, what we're trying to deal with in terms of creating a spirited atmosphere in our stadiums, A. B, we have a situation where uh, if you ever watch my activities during the game, I'm on the field, I'm in the stands, I'm on the field, you know, I'm doing a lot of different things. And in my trips from my seat to the field, I, I run into people, I have people stop me, ask me questions, pat me on the back, boo me, whatever the case may be. And I can't tell you the number of times I hear the uh, complaint about, doggone people in my section, or standing up holding these signs, and it goes on and on and on. Some of our most difficult issues related to signs and facilities are not in football and basketball, but in sports like field hockey and soccer. Uh, I had an email earlier this week from a parent of a prospective student athlete who had attended an event in one of our sports, I won't go into detail about it, who was just irate with the things that he heard and saw in in one of the sports venues, to the point that he said my son has crossed the University of Virginia off his list. I have to be responsible for how our program is promoted. And if there are things that are happening in that stadium that keep us from being able to uh, uh, provide a welcoming and positive view of the University of Virginia as it relates to our coaches' ability to recruit talented, prospective student athletes, I've got to think about that. So Again, I realize that it's changed, and I realize that uh, for some it's uh, contrary to everything that they believe in. Uh, I don't mind people yelling and screaming and doing whatever they have to do, but when it reaches a level where it's vulgar, it's obscene, and by any measure It's offensive to families and young kids, et cetera. Again, I've got to be concerned about that. Um, So the difficulty is that we can't be the censors. We, our event staff, can't be the people that pick and choose what's offensive and what's not. Uh, We went down that path and found out that uh, there's no way that we could stand on that. We either let the signs in, grit and bear it, Grin and, uh, grit our teeth and bear it, or we don't let signs in. And at the end of the day, I thought that this was worth a chance. Uh, again, I'll take the responsibility and um, that's part of my job, and we'll see how it works out. Thank you very much.